We'll finish Mark 15 this morning. We'll cover verses 33 to 47. Beginning with the 33rd verse. When the sixth hour had came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Oh, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So much going on here. In fact, a series of astonishing events. This morning I'm going to record seven astonishing events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. For three years during Jesus' ministry, the astonishing became normal. Imagine three years of your life, every morning waking up and saying, what is Jesus going to do today? What is he going to say today? Where is he going to take us? What is he going to teach? He performed miracles, the likes of which no one had ever seen, taught with authority no one had ever heard, had compassion that was revolutionary for its day loved people in a way that was so foreign they didn't know what to make of it. This was life with Jesus. This ought to be life with Jesus for us. What's he going to do today? And yet we understand, those who've been in the faith for a while, that you hit these seasons of, I don't know, familiarity. Uh, You feel a dryness. You feel maybe a distance. Where's that wonder and awe I had when I was first saved? Mark's gospel is designed to take us on a roller coaster ride. I know that's an anachronism. They didn't have roller coasters then. But the whole gospel is, it's short, it's fast. The word immediately, like, leads off every other paragraph. 
suddenly, immediately. And then you start looking at words like astonished and amazed, and they were afraid, and they were perplexed. I did a word study on my Bible software. You can just ask Bible software. It's amazing. How many times is the word amazed? How many times is the word astonished? How many times is the word... Eleven, eleven times... Let me give you the numbers here. Eleven times Mark uses amazed. Five times astonished. Eight times afraid. And I could go on with other similar words. It's that things were happening that no one had ever seen before or heard before. He's trying to capture this in print. I want you to leave this morning astonished at the cross. I want you to see things maybe you haven't seen before, maybe things you have and needed to be reminded. I want you to read your Bible with new eyes. Be excited and expect astonishing, exciting things from God if you put in the time and the study and have a heart willing to listen, God will astonish and amaze you. He's an awesome God. There is no God like our God. So seven astonishing events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. Number one, is where we left off last week, this astonishing question My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And the whole land is covered in darkness, which in itself is astonishing. Historical records uh, show that this was not a time of year for any kind of eclipse. This is a supernatural darkness right in the middle of the day, right during the Passover, when more people would be packed into Jerusalem than any other time of the year. What makes this question so astonishing is that it's the only time that we see Jesus address the first person of the Trinity as God and not Father in a personal way. In fact, it was astonishing that Jesus would call him Father. When the disciples said, teach us to pray, he said, pray in this way, our Father. It seems presumptuous to to go to the God of the universe and call him Father. It's an intimate term. It's a term of familiarity. I don't just mean that familiarity like I'm used to being around God. In that sense, true, but in the sense that we're related. We're used to Jesus addressing God as Father. We're, as Christians, used to addressing God as Father because we've been taught to pray that way. But don't let this slip by. Jesus, on the cross in utter darkness, is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you forgotten me? In my greatest hour of need, where are you? I can't find you. As Providence would have it as I'm studying this week, and my my own parents will be coming in a couple of weeks for the installation ceremony, and then hearing the news of Andy's mother. Just remembering as a, as a child, who who would I cry out for when I was sick? Sorry, Dad. 
I cry out for mom. My mom's a nurse. She'd come and sit with me and everything would be okay. If I was afraid, I'd call my dad. He'd come and sit with me. But then he'd say, basically, man up and go to bed. Yeah. He loved to watch scary movies with me and then send me to bed. You know. <laughs> I felt safe around dad, six foot four Marine, big guy. Nobody could mess with my dad. And as long as I was around him, no one's going to mess with me. And when I felt sick and alone or scared, I'd want mom. Remember a number of years ago when, when, when my grandmother passed, my mother's mom, who had come to, to live with my parents for the last few years of her life, I got the news that grandma had passed and I was a new pastor driving up north to Stockton and wondering, how do I minister to my own mom? She's the one I call when I'm grieving. And I knew God would, would show me what needed to be done, but my, my mother was grieving in a way that I'd never seen her grieve. She said she missed her mommy. Yeah. Moms. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. No, my mom listens to my sermons, so I hope, Mom, when you hear this one, you don't get embarrassed. But it was a beautiful moment. Who does Jesus cry out to when he's abandoned and forsaken by his friends, his disciples, and it's his hour of need? And yet, the very person that he needs, his Father, is pouring out his wrath on all of humanity's sins. It's not just that he couldn't find his father. It was that, in a sense, they had become enemies just for that moment in time. It's a great theological mystery. It's one of those theological points where I'm, pastors are so careful that the right words come out of your mouth that you don't say something heretical. God the Father and God the Son were still God the Father and God the Son in that moment. But in some way we can't understand, they, they were completely separated to the point where Jesus couldn't, couldn't recognize his Father. Where are you? I need you right now. This is what he suffered for us. It's astonishing that he would go through that for us. That God the Father would reconcile us to himself through this. The agony is unsearchable. It's not the pain of the cross. It's not the physical pain. It's all your greatest fears wrapped up in a single event. To be utterly alone when you need somebody. This is indeed an astonishing question. Secondly, we see an astonishing coincidence. Of course, there are no coincidences with the sovereign God. In fact, some people call them God-incidences. But all my points start with the hard C sound. <laughs> Question, coincidence. They say it helps you track the sermon better. So, 
An astonishing coincidence. While Jesus is on the cross, first of all, darkness falling over the land, right at the time when the Passover is being celebrated, at 3 o'clock, between 12 and 3, they're getting ready to slaughter the Passover lambs at 3 o'clock. Remember, Jews from the north celebrated the Passover the day before. Jews from the south would celebrate Passover this day. 3 o'clock was the designated time that the slaughtering would begin up in the temple. And Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, except they think he's saying Elijah. And they're still mocking Jesus. They're still mocking him. They know that when Messiah comes, the Bible prophesied that Elijah would come as well. Remember, Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven in the chariot of fire. He's supposed to come back when Messiah comes. Jesus proclaimed himself as Messiah. They're mocking him and saying, Oh, where's, where's Elijah? Is he going to come and take you down from the cross? And someone, it says, ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. The Roman soldiers in charge of the crucifixion would keep this cheap wine on handy well, for themselves. And possibly to prolong the crucifixion. You end up dying from dehydration and asphyxiation, so to, to give you some more liquid would just prolong the agony. They said they put it on a reed, right? They needed something stiff to get it up to his lips. We find out in John's gospel that the reed was hyssop. Where do I know that word from, hyssop? If you know your Bible, where do we hear about hyssop? The night of the Passover. The night of the Passover in Egypt. The people were commanded to slaughter a lamb, collect the blood in a bowl, and then take hyssop, dip it in the blood and paint the door posts so the angel of death would pass over your house. Wow. They're dipping hyssop in cheap wine. The irony is so thick in bringing it up to the lips of Jesus, almost reenacting the Passover night with that hyssop in their hands. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Scripture also describes hyssop as used in Leviticus by the priest to cleanse a leper or to cleanse a house. Ceremoniously, of course. You're, you're clean. It was, it was the symbol that you're clean, you're pure. David, when he writes his great psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, David says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop. We also find out from John that this was happening in order to fulfill Scripture. Jesus said, I thirst, I am thirsty. Because the scripture says in another psalm, 
69.21, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus fulfilling Scripture from the cross. Astonishing that in His agony, in His pain, in His suffering, in His abandonment from God, He has the wherewithal to fulfill Scripture. The next thing he utters after the hyssop is placed to his lips is, Father, we're back to addressing God as Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But he says it loudly. It's an astonishing cry. Nobody on the cross has the strength to yell near the end of their life. That's the point of the crucifixion. It saps you of your strength until you can no longer push up on your feet anymore to, to get a breath. You're gasping, you're drowning in your own liquids. No one had ever heard anyone on the cross cry so loudly. And he yells out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, to Telestai, it is finished. The job is done. He wasn't done in by the crucifixion. He willingly gave up his spirit. He finished the job. We could say the Romans killed Jesus. We could say the Jews killed Jesus. We could say our sin killed Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's the Father who was pleased to crush His Son. And His Son said, I lay down my life and I take it back up. He gave up His Spirit long before biological death occurred. It's why Pilate was shocked, as we read at the end of this chapter. He's dead already? Crucifixion is not supposed to happen that fast. Are you sure? Remember in the other gospel, because nightfall's coming and they don't want somebody on the cross during the Passover, during the holy time after sundown, they say, can we, can we break their legs? Was what they would do out of mercy, they had this big mallet and they would break the legs of people on the cross so they could no longer push up on the cross to get a breath. And it would speed up the death process. They broke the legs of the thief on the right and the thief on the left, and when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. He'd given up his spirit. They didn't break his legs, which fulfilled another prophecy. Not one bone would be broken. The Old Testament prophesied. Not one bone would be broken. So an astonishing cry. This proves Jesus didn't die from the actual crucifixion. He willingly gave up His Spirit. He gave His life for us. Nobody took it from Him. And it's astonishing that He's back to addressing His Father intimately. Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. I don't know whether that means that now the well, it does mean that, right? The wrath is over. It is finished. I've completed the task. What I was struggling with this week was 
Is this significant of the fact that actual biological death is nothing compared to the spiritual death, the separation from God? Before Jesus dies biologically, he's now restored back to his Father. Reminds me of Genesis 3, so I'm thinking there. They didn't die right away physically, but they died spiritually when Adam and Eve sinned. That's separation from God, hiding from God in the garden. Again, I'm treading on sacred ground. You've got to tiptoe around here theologically. Interesting things to ponder, though, amen? We get so wrapped up in the actual biological death on the cross that we'll miss what was truly astonishing. It was that spiritual death, that separation from God. The worst thing that could ever happen to us isn't physical death. There's things far worse that can happen to us than that. Our souls are eternal. These bodies are temporary. We'll get new ones. Amen. Jesus said, Don't fear man who can only kill the body. Fear the one who, after the body dies, has the authority to kill soul. Number four, an astonishing occurrence. I know it doesn't start with C, but there's two C's after the O. So it makes up for it. An astonishing occurrence. At the very hour he gives up his spirit, they begin slaughtering the lambs. Can you imagine the crowd in the temple courtyard packed in there, the priests? I just wondered, knowing the Pharisees, that they probably made some kind of event over the first lamb that was slaughtered. Like you could pay extra to have your lamb be the first lamb. Yeah, huh, it sounds like that could happen. I'm using my sanctified imagination. That, that prideful family, they're the ones every year that has the first lamb slaughtered. But an astonishing occurrence, this veil, this curtain in the temple that separates, that separates the altar from the Holy of Holies, the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat is. No one's allowed in there. Nobody's allowed in there except once a year, not during the Passover, but on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is instructed to go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and then get right back out of there. It makes you think of Nadab and Abihu who went in and offered strange fire to God and they were vaporized. And then there was the poor guy who... They were transporting the ark and it started to fall and he reached out his hand to, and he died right there. He... God is a holy, awesome God. We don't understand holiness. I don't understand it. You don't understand it. We're, we, are, we are not a holy people. We only have holiness because we have an imputed holiness from Christ. All I know is everywhere in the Bible that somebody got a glimpse of God, they were undone. They fell flat on their face. 
There must have been fear and trepidation on the Day of Atonement when the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies. Am I going to come back out alive? And now the veil that separates the mercy seat from the people is torn from top to bottom, supernaturally, not bottom to top. It wasn't a bunch of people grabbed the curtain and ripped it. It just ripped by itself from top to bottom at the same time as there's earthquakes. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the, even the tombs were opened. It said many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, Matthew tells us. And some of these people made appearances in Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. Astonishing occurrences, but this, this veil being ripped. We now have access to God the Father without having to bring our own sacrifice, Jesus provided the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. It's done. It is finished. The sacrificial system no longer needed. We have a perfect sacrifice. And we all have access now. We don't need an earthly high priest to go before the Father for us. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ And through faith, He dwells in you, so you have access to the throne of God. This is astonishing. We take it for granted 2,000 years later, but if you had told Jews back then that this was possible, they would say, no way. No, nobody goes into the Holy of Holies but the high priest. I'm going in. I know Jesus. I'm going in. I'm going to Him Every minute of every day, I can go to Him. You don't have to wait till Easter Sunday or whatever our Day of Atonement would be. He's inviting us to come every second. Bring your sins straight to God. He's ready to forgive in Christ. Bring your fears to Him. He will comfort you. Bring your trials to Him. He will carry you. Bring your sadness to Him. He's a man acquainted with sorrow and suffering. He'll cry with you. Even bring that place deep down in your heart you don't want anyone to know about. Bring it to Him because He already knows and chose to love you. It's an astonishing occurrence, this veil being torn in two. I love that we have an open curtain behind us with a cross. Kudos, whoever came up with that. That's, That's brilliant. Number five, an astonishing confession. An astonishing confession. We're back to C words. The centurion, what's a centurion? He's the leader of a hundred soldiers, hence the term centurion. He was the executioner. He was in charge of the execution. He probably drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. He certainly ordered the men to then put the cross upright 
This man has seen hundreds, probably, of crucifixions. He's the last guy you would expect to confess Jesus as the Son of God. But this is the beginning and end of Mark's Gospel. How did it start? Jesus being baptized. What happened at his baptism? God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus goes to the synagogue and there's a demon-possessed man or two. And the demons speak and say, What do you want with us, O Son of God? The demons knew who Jesus was. God the Father knew who Jesus was. Who's the next person to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Peter. Thank you. I heard Peter out there. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Well, who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what other people say Jesus is. It matters what you say He is. You have the right confession. Got young people in here still? Where are you, young people? Everyone wants to raise their hand, right? (laughs) I'm young people. Your parents' faith, their confession can't be your confession. It could be the same confession, but it needs to be your confession. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter said, you are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, you got it right. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Who's it for? Is it, is it just for the Jews? Is Jesus just for the Jews? Is it just for Gentiles? Is it just for people who grew up in the church? Is it just for Baptists? Just for Lutherans? Just for Methodists? Who's it for? Well, if the guy who nailed Jesus to the cross literally confessed Jesus is the Son of God, then Jesus has got to be for everybody. Anyone who makes this confession and believes it in their heart. We don't get a follow-up on the centurion, but I hope he's in heaven. I hope your mom met the centurion this weekend. And lots of other astonishing people. Wow, you're here? (laughs) I don't think that'll be it. I think we're all going to go, how did I get here? When we see the glory of God and the beauty of Jesus, we're going to say, how did I get here? I don't belong here. And God will say, that's right, you don't, but in Christ you do. You belong here, you're my child. This is the foundational confession of the church. It all starts with confessing Jesus is the Son of God. And then we see an astonishing company. An astonishing company. This group of women, so many women following Jesus around, which to us today would be like, yeah, he's like a rock star. No, you don't understand. 2,000 years ago, if you're a man of any self-respect and a man of any uh, dignity and any type of social status, to have a group of women following you around, that's not cool. You 
You don't see any women on the Sanhedrin except the slave girl. In fact, there's a special court for the women at the temple. They were only allowed so far. And then the men could go a little farther, and then the priest could go a little farther, and then the high priest could go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Women were treated like property. I saw a little video clip uh, two days ago. Uh, A lady had a hidden camera on her, and she's in Iraq. I don't know if you saw this video clip. One of the cities that ISIS has overtaken. Just appalling. They're yelling at this woman, tell her she's not covered up enough. But the coverings... (laughs) And she's, oh man, if they found that hidden camera on her. She just wanted this message to get out that this is what is going on. This is, and, and we're shocked at this, but this was probably more the norm 2,000 years ago. And when we see Jesus the way, always surrounded by women. Yes, he called 12 male Disciples, there's roles for men, roles for women. We understand that. But for those today who say the church is misogynistic, it, it, it puts down women, I beg you to differ. Nobody was more compassionate to women than Jesus. He restored their dignity. They're created in the image of God. The night he ate, at a Pharisee's house and allowed a prostitute to wash his feet with her hair, and they were appalled. He must not know who she is. Oh, he knew who she was. That's who he came to save. People like her, people like me, people like you. It says, when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. Can you imagine this entourage of women following Jesus Around, And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is an astonishing company that Jesus would keep company with so many women. If Mark was trying to convince people that Jesus is impressive, important, someone to be listened to, someone to be followed... Telling us about all the women that were around him is counterproductive in that culture. But it should be impressive to us, astonishing to us. Don't let this fact pass you by. I know we, we live in a culture that where women have made great strides. and Certainly, we probably still have strides to make, but... Jesus has taught his church, his bride, how to love women, how to honor women. It wasn't like, like this back then. This is astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Their testimony was no good in court. And yet, who were the first people to see the empty tomb? Women. 
If you're going to make up a story to make up a Messiah or a leader of your movement, you don't do it this way. This is not how you get a following 2,000 years ago. Now, we're starting to understand why Mark is constantly saying, astonished, amazed. What is going on? We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen compassion like this. If you're a man and and you're watching Jesus, your whole paradigm of what it means to be a man is upside down. This is manhood. This is a godly man. Your whole paradigm of who God Himself is is turned upside down. This is God. Look at all the times Jesus had to confront the Pharisees when they would say, well, God's like this. No, He is not. Jesus saying, I know the Father. I know the Father. Remember the widow and her mite? Her last two mites? Pharisees thinking, well, she's a sinner. She needs to give up all she has, even if it means complete destitution, poverty, and probably starvation. That's the kind of God we serve. Jesus, no, that's not God. God's a God of compassion. He takes care of the poor, the widow, the orphan. So sometimes we read our book through 21st century eyes and we need to read it through 1st century eyes and realize just how astonishing all of this was. As our own culture becomes less and less Christian, this is going to become more astonishing in our own country. It's already astonishing in other parts of the world. When I think about where Austin and Heather are going to go minister, this is astonishing stuff to a lot of people in the Middle East. This kind of love and compassion and humility, these are just not things that people are revered for in that culture. Compassion, humility, meekness. Finally, our final uh, C, an astonishing act of courage. There's the C word, courage. Joseph of Arimathea had to gather up courage. Again, we miss it because we're like, of course this is what you should do, is take Jesus' body down and take care of it and clean it and put it in a proper burial site. He's worthy of that. But this is astonishing because... Joseph is putting it all on the line. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin council. That's what it means, the council. I don't know. Try to put yourself in this situation. I I, I know maybe the men can, probably the, the women too, but you work your whole life. You scratch and you claw and you wait for your big break and finally... He's on the council, and not just on the council, a prominent member. When he speaks up, people listen. When there's something to be decided, they turn to Joseph of Arimathea. What do you think? You don't just get that position overnight. You have to be in the right family. You have to have the right intelligence, the right aptitude. You have to live a pretty spotless life by the standards of the law. 
This guy, people know him everywhere. There goes Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, here, sit here. Have the best seat. It gave him great wealth, great connections. I mean, this guy is plugged in. He is, he's there. He got his membership to Augusta National. You know, that means anything to you. He's got the backstage pass. He's got the security clearance. Whatever your paradigm is, wherever you work, this guy's got it, and he's willing to say, enough's enough. I've been living a lie, playing a game. This guy's the real deal. I don't care what it costs me. I'm, I'm, I'm taking his body and giving him a proper burial, and he's going to go in my family's tomb, and everyone would know that's Joseph's family tomb there. He's risking it all because it says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Finally, finally, somebody in Mark's gospel responds to Jesus properly. Finally. And it comes from where we would least expect it, from the Sanhedrin. These guys have been the villains the whole time. Boy, there's hope for all of us. There's hope for anyone that you're evangelizing. I don't care who they are, if it's that stubborn family member, if it's that co-worker where you're like, I just don't ever see this guy come. A centurion who crucified Jesus comes to faith and a prominent member of the Sanhedrin is willing to give it all up for Christ. It's not just that he's probably going to leave or lose his prominency. He's going to get kicked off the council. He's going to be shunned by his community. This is going to be financial devastation for his family. Maybe death threats. They may hound him. I don't know if he consulted with his wife and kids before he did this. This is going to change everything. And yet he's so compelled by the truth, he has to do this. These astonishing events tell us that at the end of the day, this was no ordinary man and no ordinary death. People die every day. It's part of life. People are treated horrendously all the time. We're seeing it in the news constantly. People were crucified daily in Rome. It was just part of the scene. But this is no ordinary death, no ordinary man, no ordinary crucifixion. Let yourself be astonished again. Remember, as a little boy, I'd be astonished sometimes in church, especially on Easter Sunday, because we, I was a, grow up, I grew up in the Lutheran church. It was high church. It was pageantry and uh, silver chalices during communion and. And uh, we processed in with candles, and my Lutheran brother here, Craig's nodding his head. And I got to be an acolyte, and I was just trembling. I remember one Easter Sunday, my job was to hold this enormous Bible, and we processed to the middle aisle, and I would hold it while the pastor read the narrative of the empty tune. I was like, don't drop the Bible. Not because I was afraid of being embarrassed, but it's God's Word. 
I had a healthy fear of the Lord, and then I, I, I kind of lost it. And then it would come back. My dad took us all on vacation. He, he was, uh, wanted to take pictures of every mission in California. Yeah, he's raised Catholic, so it was like this quest. There's no longer a family vacation. It was a quest to see every mission. And every one was unique, but they all had something in common. They were dark and scary. And I was filled with the fear of the Lord every time we went in there. That big Jesus on the cross, the bloody Jesus on the cross. Sometimes I don't have the nicest things to say about Catholicism from the pulpit. It's not that I'm anti-Catholic. I'm just pro-Scripture. I tell you one thing, maybe Catholics do better than we do. They understand the fear of the Lord a little better than modern evangelicals. I see people taking way too much liberty sometimes with the things of God and His Word. Some, Some of the silliness that I see. We could use a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. Reverent fear. Not fear of chastisement, because Jesus took our chastisement, but perfect love casts out all that kind of fear. But there should still be a healthy fear of the Lord, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he sees the Lord on the throne. Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. We need that kind of healthy fear, astonishment, amazement. Amen? Let our faith result in astonishing acts of courage and love. There's your application. Let Joseph of Arimathea and the centurion inspire you. Where's our astonishing act of love and courage? If this is true, if God is who He is, if Jesus really did what the Bible says He did on that cross we ought to show the world astonishing acts of courage and love. Whether it's putting your life on the line as a missionary or something even scarier, like admitting to your spouse you were wrong and you need their forgiveness. This is astonishing courage. To tell your children when you mess up, I sinned, please forgive me. That's astonishing courage for many people to ask a four-year-old to forgive you. This will compel the world to say, who is this Jesus? Is he truly the Son of God? Yes. Amen. Let's pray. My Heavenly Father, oh, to be able to call you Father. To be able to cry out to you and know you are there. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to cry out and not hear back. That you're ever present, ever close, Jesus. That you hold my hand, Father. That you carry me in your arms. That you know my deepest, darkest fears and failures and love me just the same. What wondrous love is this? What a wonderful thing the cross is. Thank you, Jesus. Inspire us, Holy Spirit, to astonishing acts of courage and love in your name. We pray, amen. Amen.